This episode is sponsored by HBO Now. HBO Now is the new way to stream all of HBO's series, movies, documentaries, sports, specials, and more. And there's no TV package required. Download the app on your favorite device to start your 30-day free trial instantly. This week on the Myths and Legends podcast, we're telling the tale of Crystal the Wise from Chilean folklore. You'll see how you can save money on college tuition. Just have your godmother enchant a shoe to be your tutor. Then, on the Creature of the Week, we'll meet tiny hunters who ride on the backs of ants and who are super self-conscious about that. This is the Myths and Legends Podcast, Episode 30, Unbreakable. This is a podcast where I tell stories from folklore. Some are incredibly popular stories you think you know, but with surprising origins. Others are stories you might not have heard, but really should. This week we're in Latin American folklore, namely Chilean folklore, and telling the story of Crystal the Wise. I know I said we'd be doing a Viking story this week, but that got pushed to next week. The story just needed a little more time. Meanwhile, I've received so many requests for Latin American stories, as well as stories with a strong female character. I read the story this week, and I knew it was perfect. It comes from Chilean folklore, but it's interesting because it's set in some unnamed kingdom in Europe. I can't really speak to extensive knowledge of the Spanish colonization of Chile, but from what I've read, it seems that this mixing of cultures resulted in a mix of native and European folklore. This is a folktale, and while there are some very slight supernatural elements, like a talking shoe, their presence is brief, so I wouldn't go so far as calling this a fairy tale. Okay, on with the story. Again with the interruptions? Crystal was annoyed. She'd been brought here to teach the prince and princess, and by any measure, the princess was incredibly sweet. She paid attention and earnestly tried to learn. The prince, however, was a massive jerk. He thought he knew more than Crystal, his tutor, and he would tell her how wrong she was while his sister was trying to study. He didn't know more than his tutor, of course, and Crystal was tired of it. She threw down her teacup on the floor, shattering it in rage. She jumped to her feet, stormed over to the teenager sitting on his fluffy little cushion, and slapped him across the face. The prince was out of the room before the red handprint on his face faded, barely able to hold back tears. He didn't come back to the lessons after that. Crystal never knew her mother, but she did have a godmother, as was seemingly the norm in many tales of older women in folklore, though godmother was a sorceress. She was a good witch, though, and she had gifted Crystal a magical talking shoe that contained all the knowledge of the world. Because, why not? Crystal was the only one who could hear the talking shoe, and she used it to learn all about, well, everything. Crystal's father was fantastically wealthy. One version says that he was rich beyond words. He hired the best tutors in the world to teach his daughter, Having learned from the magical talking shoe since she could speak, Crystal ended up teaching them. It's like if a world-renowned university professor were hired to teach an eight-year-old and came away with several new publication ideas. The tutors spread the word to their colleagues, and soon they came not seeking to teach her, but to learn from her. The king learned of Crystal's expansive knowledge and offered her ridiculously rich family even more money to let her come and tutor the prince and princess. Crystal and the princess got along fantastically. 
like sisters. But the prince had been difficult from the start. He didn't like that his tutor was female and that she was only a year or two older than him. Time passed, and both the princess and the prince came of age, and it was time for them to leave Crystal's tutelage. The prince, when asked who he might like to marry, thought only for a moment. He told his father, the king, that he would like to marry his old tutor, Crystal. The king, not attentive at all to his children and not really bothering with any follow-up questions as long as the potential daughter-in-law was rich, assumed that his son had been to every one of his tutoring sessions. It was helpful that Crystal was intelligent and beautiful, but it didn't really matter to the king. The prince was pleased. After all, the least he could do was repay her for what she had done. The king sent word to Crystal's father, and though both of them were a bit hesitant when they heard the news, they agreed to the marriage graciously as though either of them really had a choice. Crystal, the now princess, sat quietly, watching her breath in the cool night air. Her husband, the prince, had been silent since they left the wedding celebration, saying only that he had a surprise for her. They had spent hours in the carriage, jostling their way up the narrow mountain roads until they were far from the city. Crystal guessed that they were still within the kingdom, though in the night, she had no idea where they were. Though shocked by the prince's proposal, Crystal had felt honored. Apparently, he had always been in love with her. Perhaps that's why he had been so insolent. Regardless, the prince was harmless, a boy younger than herself and half as smart. Still, something was off about this trip up the mountain. They arrived at the cabin just before midnight, and Crystal had to admit that it was beautiful. I had it built just for you, the prince shared, leading her inside. Crystal was nervous, but excited, and when they were alone, she leaned in to kiss her new husband, and he kissed her back. Then, in sweet, soft tones while stroking her throat, he asked, Crystal, do you remember slapping me way back when? Crystal was confused. She almost laughed. Yeah, she remembered. One didn't forget slapping a prince, especially one who deserved it. The new princess nodded. Are you ready to apologize for it? The prince asked, his thumb no longer stroking her neck lovingly. She looked him square in the eyes. His stare was fixed on her, and his hand still around her neck. He was serious. Princess Crystal straightened and laughed in his face apologize. Not at all. You deserve that slap. And if you keep on like this, you'll get another one. Now, this is our wedding night, and I'll pretend you didn't just ask me that. The prince sneered, his hand gripped firmly around his wife's neck, and he pushed her violently into a corner. Her head slammed against the wall and wrung out in pain. Okay, he was definitely getting slapped now. He strode toward her, kicking aside a rug to reveal a trap door. With another swift kick, the secret door slid open. A cold flooded in from the darkness below. Crystal's eyes flashed between the door and the prince. What had he done? What had he built here? He smiled maniacally. Since you won't repent, he said, off to the underworld. He lunged at her, and she hit and kicked back. The struggle was loud. The servants outside had been instructed not to interfere, no matter what they heard, and as it was the prince and princess's wedding night, they had no plans to interfere. In the end, 
The prince was far bloodier and bruised than the princess, but he threw her down into the dark pit. She hit the rough, wooden floor hard, jumping to her feet as the light above choked out, leaving her in the formless abyss. The prince had slammed the door shut, and she heard the lock click into place. Wiping the blood from her eyes, Crystal felt helplessly around in the darkness. Rough and cold, the walls were stone, carved directly into the mountainside. This must have taken a lot of work, a lot of planning. She found a solitary chair in the darkness and sat down. Floorboards above her creaked, so the prince must still be there. She was resolved not to give him the satisfaction of pounding on the floor, of screaming out in terror. She was afraid, of course, but surely he wouldn't leave her here to die. He wasn't that cruel, was he? Though he had married her and secretly built a mountain prison cell for her because she corrected him once, so Crystal acknowledged that she might not know the lengths of his darkness. Still, she didn't scream, and instead, sat up in the chair all night. In the morning, the trap door opened, and she saw her husband, the prince, smiling. I have a rope ladder right here. I'll toss it down, and you can clean yourself up and start living the life of a princess. All you have to do is say you're sorry for slapping me. Crystal didn't look up at the light at all. She sat in the chair, the light flooding down around her, and simply said, Nope, and not another word. The prince's face contorted in rage, and he kicked the door shut. Fine, stay down there, he screamed. The prince knew she was strong-willed, but he was sure he could break her. Calling a maidservant into his bedroom, he unpacked some of the princess's clothes. He told the servant girl to put on his wife's clothes, and also not worry about where his wife was, or about the obvious trapdoor in the corner. A few hours later, the prince met the king and Crystal's father just outside the city. The maidservant sat on a horse off in the distance, in Crystal's clothing. The prince told the king's men that they would be taking a long trip, to a friend's place in the country. They will be back in a few months, at most. They just needed more time alone together, away from the city. Both fathers waved happily at the young woman on the horse in the distance before the prince left, riding back to the isolated cabin on the mountain. That evening, the prince again came and asked Crystal if she would be willing to beg for his forgiveness. And again, he found her sitting in the chair, not looking up, offering only a monosyllabic answer. He threw down some food and shut the door again. Days passed, and the result was always the same. Soon, he stopped calmly asking and just stood above her yelling, threatening her, but she still didn't give in. She would wait until he shut the door, grab the food, and squirrel it away. Early on, she had found an alcove in the rock wall to hide food so she could keep what meager bits she had away from the rats. And then, as she was rooting around in the darkness, she found something hard, something metal. She pulled it out. It was a butter knife. She hid the knife away in the folds of her dress, her wedding dress, that was now more brown than white after days underground. She didn't think she'd need it against the prince. He was cowardly, and he would sooner stop sending down food than come down himself. The knife would help against the rats, at least. A couple days later, in the middle of the night, or what she thought was the night, she had no idea, she heard scraping and chewing somewhere in her cell. She grabbed her knife and went to investigate. The rat stopped chewing and ran off, but Crystal felt around on the wooden floor 
until she found a hole. The rat had been chewing at the wood, and Crystal could feel cool air escaping from the hole. Lowering her ear to the opening, she thought she recognized the faint sound of rushing water, possibly from the heart of the mountain. Her mind raced, and she had an idea. The next day, she sat patiently, waiting for the prince to stop demanding her forgiveness and just go. She had work to do. After what seemed like hours, the door to the room above slammed shut, and Crystal took four steps and was at her corner. With her prized butter knife, the princess resumed hacking at the floorboards. And we'll see what was underneath and how she'll use it to her advantage right after this. Today's sponsor is Casper Mattresses, obsessively engineered American-made mattresses at a shockingly fair price. And now, you can get $50 towards any mattress purchase by going to casper.com legends and using the code legends. Okay, so I like to look up random facts from the Middle Ages, and I've always been curious about mattresses. Apparently during the Middle Ages, a good mattress could just be a heap of straw wrapped in canvas, and this marvel of engineering would cost you about 500 of today's dollars. We've come a long way. Casper mattresses are state-of-the-art and use a hybrid of latex foam and memory foam and can be delivered to your house in a box. Seriously, it's impressive. They've got a risk-free trial and return policy. They'll deliver it straight to you, and you can try it for 100 days, and if you're not happy, they'll pick it back up. You can actually sleep on it, whereas if you get it in a store, you might just get a minute to lay there awkwardly on their mattresses with a salesperson standing by. It's $500 for a twin-size mattress and $950 for a king-size mattress. And if you know anything about shopping for mattresses, those are actually pretty good prices. So yeah, you can get $50 for any mattress purchase by going to casper.com legends and using code legends. Terms and conditions apply. It took nearly two days of sawing with a dull butter knife, but at last Crystal had cut enough away from the floor that she could slip out of her underground cell. As it turns out, there was a jagged, rocky shaft down through the mountain, just big enough for Crystal to take a deep breath and try to squeeze her way through. She would need as much time as possible, so her escape would not be until evening, when the prince would open the trap door. She fell asleep sitting up, as she had learned to do to avoid the rats and snakes and woke just as a piece of bread hit her head. Like clockwork, the prince threw his standard tantrum, and as Crystal, again, refused to apologize. As soon as the light was gone, and the prince's footsteps faded away, Crystal ran to the corner, and lowered herself down into the darkness. There were a few spots on the way down where she thought she was stuck, and began to panic, but she pushed herself through. It was a full half-hour climb, down the narrow shaft between the rocks scraping her skin and clothes even further. But soon she found herself above a rushing river, under a mountain, still in complete darkness. Crystal took the tattered fringes of her dress and tore off a long strip, securing the strip to a rock jutting out from the river's edge. The princess hesitated only for a moment longer, and then dropped down into the water. The strong current pulled her along. At times, the river bottlenecked through such narrow passages in the rock that she couldn't surface for air. But Crystal was determined, and eventually the river spit her out onto the moonlit countryside. After weeks in her cell, even the full moon was bright enough to make her squint. She pulled herself up the riverbank, shivering in her dirty, torn wedding dress. Luckily, one of her father's estates was just an hour's walk away, and even more fortuitously, 
he happened to be at this one. The rich merchant was utterly shocked to see his scraped, soaked, and freezing daughter stumble from the shadows. Outraged at the news of his daughter's treatment, the father made plans to ride to the king that evening, but Crystal stopped him. What could they do? Her father was powerful, sure, but the king was the king. He was the law. Even if the father could expose this, what would stop the king, or his son when he came to power, from taking revenge later on? What would stop them from having the father arrested and executed on fabricated charges and all of the family's wealth seized? Crystal had another plan to escape all this, and oddly enough, it involved returning to her prison. After inhaling her first real meal in weeks, she left the comfort of her father's estate with some extra clothes, a pack of food, and some poison for the rats. Crystal had not anticipated how difficult it would be to climb back up to her cell. Swimming upstream against a mountain river proved to be no small feat. She ended up clinging to the rocky walls and slowly inching her way back up until she returned to the strip of her dress fluttering with the draft. She hoisted herself out of the water, clawing her way through the narrow shaft, upwards, and finally found herself back in her familiar cell. She was exhausted, making a mental note to try to do something about that river down there. Weeks passed, and one day Crystal found herself walking back to her cell, she escaped nightly at this point, along a dry riverbed. Under the guise of building a new fortress for the king, Crystal's father had found a way to divert the flow of the river, right under his nose, so that Crystal could come and go from the cell much more easily. He had also constructed a makeshift stable next to the exit of the cave, so that his daughter could ride to her home that much faster, get a good sleep, and enjoy a meal before returning to captivity. Crystal's plan finally came together in earnest when, one night, when the young prince was asking her to repent, he let it slip that he was leaving for Paris that evening. A servant would be by to feed her and ask her the question, but maybe she should think about her answer because the servant didn't have to come every day or even every week because remember Crystal, no one even knows you're here. She looked up at him for the first time since she had been thrown in that cell. With a smile, she told him to have fun in Paris, dear. Be good. Unnerved by her complete lack of submission to him, he slid the door shut without another word. When Crystal heard the floor creak for the final time, she peeled off the black, mildewy wedding dress, throwing it into a ball. She donned fresh clothes, slid down the rocky shaft, and ran to her horse. As the sun set in the distance, she rode to her father's house at full speed. There, she asked her father for a fast sleeping coach and a lot of money. She was going to Paris. The prince was in love. She had rented the mansion across the street, and every morning he would see her come out in her elegant dresses, board a carriage, and ride off. It was the best part of his day. Soon, the lecherous young prince steeled himself to go speak to her. He spied her one morning, across the street waiting for her carriage. He had never seen her up close. She was wearing a wide-brimmed hat, her back to him. Crystal's heart was beating out of her chest as she stood on the side of the street, looking out beneath her wide-brimmed hat, waiting for her carriage to arrive. 
Her fast coach had whisked her to Paris as quickly as possible, while the prince's caravan dallied on the way. She arrived a couple weeks before him and transformed herself, and she hoped this would work. Crystal had wrapped herself in the trendiest of all Paris fashions, cut her hair, changed her makeup, and began perfecting a subtly different accent. When her husband arrived in the city, Crystal was unrecognizable as her old self. She turned gracefully, revealing her face to him, and the prince's jaw dropped. She was stunning. He could barely sputter a word as she greeted him warmly. The two got along very well. At first, the prince was in awe of her beauty, wit, and charm, but he soon relaxed, feeling comfortable around her. On some level that he didn't even realize, she reminded him of his wife, his true wife, that was likely dying in a mountain prison. The pair spent weeks together on the streets of Paris. The prince earnestly and madly in love with his new woman, and she acting as if she was earnestly and madly in love with him. Then, over a candlelit dinner in his mansion, he asked her to marry him. She blushed, forced tears, and said that she would love to marry him. So, they were married, again, in a quiet ceremony in Paris. Seeing as it was marrying the same woman twice, it wasn't technically polygamy, but not for lack of trying on the part of the prince. He never mentioned his real wife, the famed tutor, Crystal, locked away in a cold and damp mountain prison. In all honesty, he had probably thought about her twice during the whole time in Paris. Back in the remote mountain cabin, dust had gathered on everything. The servant who was supposed to be coming daily to feed the woman who was supposed to be in the cell had been there only once. The prince had given the servant enough money for a year's worth of food for the girl. And seeing as that was a veritable fortune to a peasant, well, the servant decided that his wife and children needed the food more than whatever secret prisoner the prince had hidden away in the mountains. The servant had arrived not with a basket of food, but with a hammer and nails. He spent 10 minutes nailing the trap door shut left the cabin, and never returned. After the Paris wedding, Crystal, still in disguise, had a real wedding night with the prince. She had to will herself to it then, and for several nights and several weeks afterward, until it happened, she became pregnant. In the quiet moments between the couple, she would ask the prince if she was ever going to meet his family. She joked that, with a quiet, private wedding, and the fact that she had never met them, he wouldn't just leave his wife somewhere, would he? He gave her a forced and pained smile. Of course not, honey. In time, Crystal gave birth to twins, a boy and a girl. They were beautiful. Crystal named one Paris and the other Francis. This happy news was met with tragic news from the prince's home kingdom. A messenger had arrived. The old king was dead, and the prince was now the new king. He needed to return home immediately to secure his rule. In haste, the prince packed up everything he had, telling his wife she must stay here, in Paris, while the prince navigated the succession. He had been gone a full year, was ignorant of court politics now, and didn't know what he might be getting into. Crystal, again, forced a show of tears as she held the children. Would it be dangerous? It might just be, honey. It might just be, the prince said. That's why she needed to stay here, and should, under no circumstances, come unless called. She nodded mournfully. Okay. She just had one small request. Would he sign papers saying these twins were his rightful heirs? 
If it was as dangerous as he said, then she might need them as proof. It is dangerous, right? Otherwise, why don't I come? I should just come, right? No, 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 the prince said, hastily signing the papers that Paris and Francis were his rightful, legal children and heirs. He waved to her as he rode away, telling her again to, remember, not come visit unless he told her to do so. The prince waved with a sad look on his face until he was out of sight, and then he plopped down on the carriage seat and laughed at his stupid, stupid wife. The prince was going home to his father, who was still very much alive, and trying to introduce the woman from Paris into his life at home without issue. The prince mentioned, sadly, that Crystal, his tutor who he loved very much and who had been with him the whole time, had died in childbirth on their travels in some foreign country. He had buried her and the baby there, so no need to go looking for them. He was about to send another letter, announcing that he had met a woman in Paris when he got a letter back from his father saying that, since his wife was dead, he should come home at once. The king of Spain was visiting with his daughter, his sole heir, and he was looking to marry her off immediately. She was fantastically rich, and if the prince married her, he would be the king of both his homeland and Spain. The prince had put on a sad face as he told his Paris wife of his dead father, and though he was surprised when she asked him to sign the papers, it hadn't mattered. Even with hastily drawn up papers, no one would believe some single mother if she ever decided to follow up on the prince and his kingdom. It had gone perfectly. The prince returned to his kingdom to see everyone in black, warning the princess, Crystal, and their child together. Oh, yeah, very sad and all that. Now where's this new woman I'm marrying on the heels of my wife's death? He met the princess of Spain and liked her well enough. She seemed quiet and submissive, and the prince thought that he wouldn't need to lock her up in a makeshift dungeon to get her to do what he wanted. And then he remembered Crystal. He had almost believed his own lie about her death. He went to the servant that he had paid to feed her. Well, yeah, the servant said, about that. Instead of feeding the person and keeping him or her alive, I just nailed the trapdoor shut and kept the money. Hmm, the prince said and thought about it. Well, okay, great. Problem solved. Good man, he continued, patting the servant on the back before leaving to prepare for his third wedding. As he entered the cathedral, he looked up to see his bride already at the altar. She was early, and he was content to get things started. He walked up to the princess of Spain, though he could barely make out her face, as she was so heavily veiled. The ceremony began, and the princess lifted her veil, revealing not the expected princess of Spain, but Crystal. The prince turned white. How had she learned of this? How had she come here? He was about to speak, to yell out that she wasn't the princess, but Crystal's eyes locked onto his, and almost imperceptibly, she shook her head and directed him downward, to her right hand, to the signed papers from Paris in an envelope. The prince knew, in an instant, that she had him. If he stopped the ceremony, she would reveal to the crowd that she was the rightful princess and her children the royal heirs. The prince felt he had no choice but to let the ceremony continue. The priest continued because he didn't really know what the princess of Spain was supposed to look like, and the couple was married for the third time, again in a grand public ceremony. 
And just as a quick note, he still doesn't know that she's Crystal, his tutor. To him, she's his Paris wife. In Paris, in his mansion, Crystal had been intercepting his messages. As it turned out, messengers will not break the sacred bond of trust between a messenger and the recipient of the message, except for literally any amount of money more than they were being paid by the sender. She had given the messengers a hefty sum for their discretion and read every letter that came to the prince, rightfully not trusting the man who had married her and left her to die in a dank basement over a slap. As her twice-husband left Paris to return to his kingdom, she had rushed to the coach she had prepared previously and again reached his destination before him. She introduced and left the twins with her father, making all haste to the wedding and slipping into the cathedral just before the princess of Spain. Of course, the visiting royalty from Spain were outraged, but the prince had to save face, and so he feigned happiness about the marriage, even though the last thing he wanted to do was publicly marry the woman he had already married and ditched in Paris. Crystal revealed the children, and all the people rejoiced in the heirs. The king, though thoroughly confused, was pleased to learn that not only was his new daughter-in-law fantastically rich, but they already had children together. This diplomatic kerfuffle with Spain would eventually blow over, and the king didn't care who his son married. That night, the prince, overcome by anxiety, confessed the whole plot to his thrice-over wife. He begged her for forgiveness, and he continued, also revealing the death of his tutor, far up in the cabin. It was tragic, really, and yet, wait, why was his wife taking all of this news so calmly? Crystal waited patiently for the prince to finish his story, and then smiled. Oh yes, she began, the cabin in the mountains, with the secret underground cell, the one with the loose floorboards, and the passageway below that, if you squeeze just so, you can fit through. I do recall that well, Prince. For the second time that day, the Prince turned pale, hardly able to breathe as he begged pathetically for her forgiveness. She gave it, and said that she would forgive him, but reminded him that she didn't trust him, she didn't need to. Her children were the documented heirs to the kingdom now, and most of all, even though he had tried to imprison her, kill her, and abandon her, she had outwitted him at every turn, and he should remember that if he ever thought about betraying her again. He had intended to marry her, to trap her, and exact his revenge, but in the end, she had turned his planned scenario back on him. The prince had already named his heirs, and they were her children, whom the people loved. At this point, he was unnecessary. With that, she bid the prince good night and left. This story was an excellent example of a strong female protagonist, and I was able to find a couple different readings of the tale. The first was not very generous to Crystal, and it's a reading based on a lot of fairy tale tropes. In that reading, she wanted to be married to the prince, but saw his abandonment of her as an opportunity to help him grow up and mature. Her victory in that reading was becoming a mother. She grew into a triumphant mother figure, both to her children and her husband, helping him to see the error in his ways to become the virtuous head of the family. In that version, the husband was just childish and immature, not dangerously devious and deceptive. Honestly, and I know some people have commented that I should keep my 21st century opinions out of these stories, but that interpretation makes me cringe. 
In that one, Crystal wasn't working to save herself and her father, but helping a murderous man-child, whom she still loved for some reason, see the error of his ways, even though he did not deserve it at all. In that interpretation, it all worked out in the end because she can now be assured that she is submitting to a loving and trustworthy man. Despite several damaging lies, he's changed. He's different now. My personal favorite reading is the one portraying Crystal as a victim of a patriarchal system in the beginning of the story. She was married, but then imprisoned when she didn't do his bidding. She was all alone and would have died if left to the whims of the prince, who quite literally would have gotten away with murder. She used her grit, intelligence, and ingenuity to escape, and instead of running or resorting to violence, she decided to turn the very same system that had trapped her right back on the prince. Like a skilled chess player, Crystal outmaneuvered him at every turn until the successful checkmate at the altar. In the end, she used the system that enabled a prince to essentially leave his wife for dead after imprisoning her with absolutely no accountability to her advantage. She trapped him in the marriage, as she had been trapped in the beginning, and she used the patriarchal system to cement her own safety and legacy. That's it for this week. Next week, we are actually getting into the legendary Viking sagas. It's an epic tale where two enemies fight each other throughout centuries for a mistake made long ago. It has giants, ogres, trolls, magic, and, of course, a kraken. It's half exciting and ridiculous and half crushingly relevant to everyday life. It is the saga of Arrow Odd. I want to say thanks to Grace Fenlison, Lou Pennell, Recco, NomTab86, Julie G, Aquabomber, Cersei Lannister, also if that's the real Cersei Lannister, sorry about that dig in episode 3A, Stupid Dog 01, Sem C. Call, J. Ruburian, T. Hart, Cali Chica 1986, May L, Chris B, PJL Mac, K. E. Maynard, Jamie 4911, Kristen M, Axe Maynard 11, Danny A, Hello Gen 722, Chant Hurdler or Chan Thurdler, Alan S, Shannon A, Jacob C, Ruth A, Kevin S, Kaylin M, Mallow D, Travers M, Christopher D, and Megan G for becoming members on the site in March of 2016. We're still working on the names for March of 2016, so thank you so much to everyone who became a member. Really, you make this possible. And yeah, there's a membership thing on the site. For less than the price of four pickles on Amazon.com, you can support the show and get extra episodes and source pack ebooks that won't drip green vinegar on you. Also, that seems really expensive for pickles. Check out support.mythpodcast.com for more information. The creatures this week are the Abatwa, from South African folklore. They are tiny, tiny men and women who live alongside ants. The ants are alternatively their horses and their roommates because the Abatwa stay in their hills overnight. During the day, they will go hunting. They'll abandon their ants and climb up on the back of a horse and sit one behind the other all the way down the length of its back. They'll ride it for miles with their extremely poisonous spears. If they find an animal, they'll throw their tiny, tiny spears, kill it, and jump off to eat it raw. If they don't find an animal, well, they aren't extremely picky and are also riding an animal. They'll just turn their poison spears on the horse, kill it, and eat it. There are two different versions of this creature. One is visible only to children under four years old, pregnant women, and wizards. One of these things is not like the other. If you're a pregnant woman in your third trimester and you see a male batwa, you're having a boy because reasons. This version doesn't so much appear to men, but crawls all over them in their sleep, giving them heart palpitations. The second version is visible to everyone, but 
very self-conscious about their size. Remember, they're equipped with a super tiny spear covered in super potent poison, enough to bring down an adult horse, so a human isn't a problem. If you run into them, you shouldn't say, oh, I didn't see you there, unless you want a foot full of poison darts. What you should say is, oh, you're so big that I saw you from that mountain over there, or I saw you when sailing into port a few miles away, and I just had to say hi. Their ego sufficiently stroked, they will let you go. And all you have to do is live with the extreme anxiety of trying to never step on ants again to avoid getting a foot full of poison. That's it for this week. The theme song is by the band Broke for Free, and the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Combs. Links to the other music I used are in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next time. Let's talk about Medi-Cal. You have a choice, and Molina makes it easy, especially when it comes to the care you need. So let's talk about you, about making your life easier, about extra help to manage your health. Let's talk about your needs now and for the future. Nobody knows Medi-Cal better than Molina. It starts with a phone call. Call 866-420-5330 or visit meetmolinaca.com. Let's talk today.